Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Hello, everyone. Welcome to VLGA Connect and the weekly governance update, which is brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. I'm Chris Eddy, and that's Steve Cooper looking sartorially, sartorially splendiferous. Is that? Will that no, be? that's Chris. That is, in fact, as Alison Watt would say, no, Chris, that's terrible. Okay. Um, but right. I'm at least acknowledging um, Australian Music T-shirt Day, which I notice is something of which you are bereft. So, uh, listeners, Steve sent me a message before today's program and said, don't forget, it's Oz Music T-shirt day. My response was, what? <laughs> I don't have an Oz Music T-shirt, I'm sorry. So I'm going to defer to you, Stephen. What are you wearing? I'm wearing, Chris, and I'll do our, um, I'll do our YouTube viewers a favour and not actually show you my torso. I'll just describe <laughs> what it is. Um, I'm wearing a Gang of Youths T-shirt with some lyrics from their breakout song, Let Me Down Easy. And the words on the front of the T-shirt go, I've got solipsism, baby, and I brought lemonade. <laughs> Okay, I guess you had to be there for that lyric, did you? Um, well, I think the many thousands of people who have, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, in fact, maybe even millions who have list, bought or listened to that tune uh, are well and truly on board. Chris? Surely you're exaggerating just slightly. No, no. Oh? It's a, a more than effervescent song. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, a nod there to Oz Music T-shirt day. Uh, not a day I was aware that was on the calendar, but there you go. Uh, we've got a bit of local government news to get through, uh, Steve, uh, starting with the outcome this week of an arbitration process at uh, Darabin City Council that I've been calling the da Dara... No, I forget what I was calling it. Calling it, it the Darbitration. The Darbitration. That's right. I've invented a new portmanteau and we had a discussion. Steve, you weren't aware of what a portmanteau I was. I thought a portmanteau was just what a Queenslander would call a suitcase. Um, uh, it, it is. It is that as well. Yes. But you, you have told me now, Chris, that a portmanteau is one of those like um, Brangelina. Yep. Um, Infotainment. Yep. Uh, smog. Uh, basically joining two words together to form a new one. So I've I've been talking about the arbitration. Arbitration. <laughs> I think that's one that yeah certain people would prefer not to have. Um, and Chris, we'll put the links in the show note. The uh, uh, there was a report in the Age. The arbiters' report was presented to a special meeting of the council this week on the fourteenth. Uh, the arbiter um, Joel Silver, a well-respected administrative law barrister. Um, found that uh, matters of misconduct or allegations of misconduct by Councillor Suzanne Newton against um, Councillor Tim Lawrence, uh, two of those uh, particular matters were proven. And um, as a consequence, um, he found that Councillor Lawrence was of a need to redo some um, induction training. He needed to apologise sincerely at a meeting of the council and he needed to be suspended for two weeks um, from the date um, at which the report was presented to Council, Chris. 
Yeah, the thing that's got the attention, and I think it was a headline in the uh, in the newspapers as well as on the local government news roundup, was the comment that uh, the Councillor Lawrence apparently sort of made the argument that uh, in responding to or dealing with the behaviour of others, uh, he sort of felt the need that he had to step into that realm of misconduct. And the arbiter said, well, if local government were the Wild West, that might be so, but it is not. How have I gone? Have I? You've gone pretty well. I had written yeah. something um, quite similar down to that. He said, if it were the Wild West, that would be true. But sections 143 and 154 of the Local Government Act provide to, provide to the contrary. <laughs> to the contrary, correct. Yes. <laughs> Which I thought was a lovely turn of phrase. Um, I thought there was another interesting, it is a really thoughtful um, decision, Chris, and um, Mr Silva had regard to some of the matters that we've talked about and that have drawn wide comment previously in terms of Stonington. And look, every matter, um, as our good friend Tony Rannick would say, every matter needs to be taken on its merits. So need to be a bit careful about that. Mm. But Mr Silva has been really careful to draw in and consider what the... Um, what you know robust political debate means and at one point in the um he made a couple of quite interesting article um observations in fact more than a couple he said that performing the role includes whenever a council comments on council matters or indeed comments on other councillors now if you're out on a walk that might be a stretch but if you're jumping on social media as a council councillor or even as a councillor who happens to have a private account um, the inference I drew was commentary on your councillor colleagues would be, you know, part of the role of the councillor. The other mm. part that I thought Chris was quite interesting, he talked about um, unfounded suggestions of impropriety or misconduct do not qualify as robust debate. Mm. So, mm. you know, drew a line. <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve, is this helpful in terms of setting some precedent in where that line between robust political debate and misconduct sits? Has it clarified things for councillors going forward? Oh, Chris, um, what do you think? Uh, well, I'm not sure. I was interested in your your oh, view. I think if you've put me on the spot and you've done it again, Chris, questions without notice, you know what I think. Um, I think... It's a help. Right. There, there will remain grey, grey space. There continues to be grey space. But the fact, and I think it's a really um, powerful and important point, not only between councillors, councillors and, and council staff, the community and council, and we've talked about it previously, unfounded suggestions of propriety or misconduct actually should be referred to the appropriate authorities, not put out in the marketplace. So I think that is helpful um, if there is some sort of precedent. And this is this is sort of precedent as a guideline rather than precedent as, you know, Supreme Court law. Um, I think it's better than not having um, that ruling being made. Um, another question without notice. When other arbitration processes occur and there will be others in fact i think there's one or two on foot as we speak do those arbiters have regard to the decisions that previous arbiters made have made at different councils in terms of those precedents i would presume so mr silver certainly had regard to um 
I think from memory, two of the arbitration matters that had been oh. conducted at Stonington City Council. So again, um, as we talked about with Tony previously, we're kind of building up this reservoir of, of decisions. Yep. Now, the, as I said, the matters will be slightly different and the circumstances will be different. We're dealing with different people. So it won't be 100% clear, but, you know, hmm. it's helpful, certainly. Okay. That's, yep. that's really interesting. Probably one of the most uh, interesting stories to come out uh, this week. Now, um, I do make the point there is a municipal monitor in place at Darabin, who is no doubt observing all of these uh, activities and outcomes. And while we're on the topic of monitors, another has finished up their uh, appointments down at South Gippsland. Yes. Yeah, so unlike at Moira, where the monitor finished up and the Commission of Inquiry came in, yes. um, can I just mention in passing, Chris, and we understand that the Commission may have commenced its activities, but that's all confidential, so no one's going to talk about what's happening until it comes out the other end. We'll just um, have to wait like everybody else. Which is a really fine thing, I think. Mm. Um, wouldn't speculate uh, midway through. Um, Prue Digby uh, has finished her term as monitor, and listeners might recall that that was an interesting appointment. It's the first time a minister has appointed a monitor to oversee the return of an elected council after administration um, in support of that elected council operating you know, effectively and efficiently yeah. and coherently and in keeping with good governance. I don't know, Chris. We haven't heard a lot about South Gippsland. What's happening down there? Well, I think that's probably a good sign, Steve. I think things are running pretty smoothly, aren't they? Well, again, we're going to have to wait um, for Prue Digby's report because the monitor will need to do a report to the minister. I'm not sure what the timetable is. And even if the minister received um, the report prior to the election, uh, Minister um, Horn can't do anything with it anyway. So at some time post the election, I presume we will receive, um, you know, there will be publication of the report um, by the monitor, Prue Digby. And I just would have presumed, Chris, that will be really good reading. And look, I think a lot of people will be reading that, A, just out of interest to see how that how, how that process has worked, but particularly in the cities of Casey and Whittlesea, which are under administration, because the general thought is that this may be the model going forward when a council has been under administration to ensure that that assistance in governance is provided from the outset rather than being used as a reactive measure at some point down the track. Um, Chris, we were at the VLGA were really privileged, and I wouldn't say we led the charge, but certainly to be involved in the community leadership program down there in some work with the council staff um, in, you know, while the administrators were in place. And I've been had the good fortune of speaking with Julia Eisenbeis on a number of occasions um, regarding the work that the administrators did there. Um, I will be surprised if there's not some really powerful commentary um, in Prue's report about, um, you know, some important steps that uh, mm. are necessary, not just for those councils, but for any council that seeks to be successful. All right. So we'll just have to wait and see on that one. A couple of follow-up. Like Chris. This no, we don't. We'd, we'd really? prefer to have the inside track, wouldn't we? But we'll just, we'll just have to wait. Uh, a couple of follow-ups from last week. We talked a little bit about the, uh, the new Act's probably don't call, shouldn't call it the new act anymore, uh, LGA 2020's approach to regional libraries and what councils need to do over the next few years. And we've had some terrific guidance uh, come out of Hunt and Hunt lawyers on that this week. Oh, look, Chris, a hot tip. Um, 
And thanks to Tony Rannick for giving us um, an early version of what will be um, a bulletin from Hunt and Hunt regarding um, the obligations for what are going to be regional library corporations, I think. Um, and without preempting that, I think, um, in fact, you did that to me last week, you asked a question without notice. So <laughs> recurring theme, Chris. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's certainly um, the, the version that we've seen without giving it away reinforced that one of the elements um, which government considered was that, um, you know, the opportunity that's presented with a, you know, a, a regional board model rather than a, you know, a corporation, um, uh, you know, a grouping of councils to, um, to be sort of skill-based and, and change mm -hmm. the dynamics of, ma of management. Um, it goes into some more details are around the constraints of what councils are able and not able to do and including in particular the fact that they're not going to be able to continue on as they are, that, um, you know, during the period councils can leave, this 10-year period, um, councils can leave regional uh, library corporations, but they can't, they can't join. Join. Mm. Yeah. The other thing that um, I'll be really interested to see, and we didn't touch on it later, and it's maybe it's a side issue, but a really significant one, and I, I don't know if it was intended, are really the significant um, cost associated potentially with transmission of business um, arrangements uh, mm. in regard to staff moving um, from the you know 1989 arrangement to a to a corporate entity. So uh, the question I had last week, and I think the hunt and hunt advice might help go some way towards answering, is what was the purpose of putting this requirement into the new act? And it seems to be linked to the uh, the aim to be less prescriptive, but also to allow councils more um, uh, autonomy in providing improved service delivery to communities. But I'm yet to really see specifically why this helps those aims. Yeah, well, we'll what we'll need to say, Chris, is councils, because it'll be interesting. I think we did touch last week on the fact councils will go through a range of conniptions and um, over another range of hurdles, if I can mix my metaphors, to come up with whatever model various groupings of councils deem to be appropriate for them. Um, mm. Now, the question will be, does the Act act as an enabler um, in that decision-making? Yeah. All right. That's, the, only that's thing that one, the one thing that they can't do, though, is maintain the status quo. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's one we'll come back to when that uh, piece of advice is uh, more broadly available. The other thing we mentioned just in passing, but we've had some very interesting mm. uh, insight and reading on is the, the use of the term grandfathering. And it was in relation to that uh, regional library uh, issue. And we've had some some mail in the mailbag this week, Steve. Yeah, thanks to our regular contributor who um, provided us with that. And I did not see it coming, Chris. And isn't it funny, but when it did come in, it was like, oh, of course, that there is a racial history to this emanating from the south of the of the US and I won't do the description justice but um, basically um, uh, when African Americans were given uh, rights post the Civil War there were many of the southern states that sought to still exclude African Americans from voting they couldn't have a literacy test because that would have excluded a lot of the white folk so what they did was said well, if your grandfather was able to vote 
30 years ago, then you're allowed to vote. Um, Which basically, of course, had the effect of excluding that um, the African-American group of people. So um, as I said, I didn't realise that I've probably, um, that's a, a fairly superficial description. I would encourage anyone to read the piece that we um, put on the show notes because it is a really, um, it's a really interesting and thoughtful um, explanation of that term. And like you, Chris, I don't think we'll be using it again. Uh, it was eye-opening for me as well, Steve. And, and yes, we'll put the link in the, the show notes. And as our correspondent said, once they knew about that, they've stopped using the term. <laughs> and uh, I think we now agree. Mm, we do, definitely. Yeah. All right. Uh, It's been a big week again for mayoral uh, elections around the state. Uh, Once again, not going to go through the entire list. You can uh, see the list being updated as the results come in on the Local Government News Roundup website. A couple of note, though, some uh, some, uh, returned councillors particularly or returned mayors uh, in Horsham and uh, in Frankston, particularly in the last couple of days, Steve? Well, I'm not familiar so much with the Frankston one, but I was interested that Horsham um, have re-elected Councillor Robin Galeen for her third period this term and for the first time have gone with um, a deputy mayor role and made the appointment mm. of Councillor Penny Flynn. So congratulations to them. That's And it's an interesting call that we're a council having considered the extra expense of a deputy mayor, what the role would be, um, decides to go down that path. And I think if if the mayor needs support of a deputy, it's not that yeah. much extra. So that's pretty good. Um, I, I, I thought given those changes, we'd see uh, most councils go with the deputy mayor, but I think it's going to stay about the same. There are a handful, because um, there's one that did have a deputy mayor that has now decided not to. And there you've got an example where it's gone the other way. Yeah, and we're sort of, as, as we talked about in the mayoral panel, I think Nolene Duff made the comment a couple of weeks ago, really the work to be done is on kind of right-sizing the position description for the deputy mayor role to, to ensure that it provides um, appropriate support to the mayor, but doesn't become uh, uh, just a step ahead, ahead of the others among equals and that, you know, other councillors still get the chance to, um, to you know, yeah. be part of that you know show their leadership role as well Chris yeah. yeah I thought the Frankston result was notable only because um well they're all notable but Nathan Conroy has been returned as mayor for another term the deputy mayor there is the young councillor Liam Hughes so joining that list with uh you know Anthony Tran as uh, the the last mayor of Maribyrnong Jasmine Nguyen as the uh, still I think the current mayor at Brimbank of these uh these youngsters coming through the councillor ranks which is good to see absolutely um can I add to Chris, um, yes. a few others? Um, at Ararat, um, Councillor Joe Armstrong, again, third term as mayor. And I think this was um, similar to Robin Joe, um, Joe's first foray into local government. Um, so they've stayed, um, stayed with the one mayor through the term. Mm-hmm. Chris, a special mention um, to a couple of our VLGA board members, Councillor Steve Holland at Mornington Peninsula and also Councillor Grace Lavalla at Central Goldfields have both been elected as mayors. So there'll be a lot of um, clanking of mayoral chains around VLGA board meetings for a while. <laughs> uh, yes, that'll be good to see. Uh, some long-term uh, mayors uh, returning to the role too. Uh, one that jumps to mind is Les McPhee at Swan Hill, who's been elected as mayor, and I think it's his sixth term since 2013. So Swan Hill, that's in Northern Victoria, isn't it, Chris? It is. Up uh, as, they, as they say, Steve, up on the Murray. That's it. That's it. And uh, yeah, congratulations to Les. Um, 
uh, safe, experienced hands. And I think you mentioned in the roundup that that's, you know, three mayors this year because Jade Benham uh, had uh, stepped down due to uh, candidacy in the state election. Um, Councillor Bill Moore, who is also an experienced mayoral campaigner, yes. stepped up for five months and then now they've gone with uh, Councillor Les McPhee. Exactly right. So you're the person who listened to this week's episode. I'm very pleased to know that. Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, across the border into South Australia, interesting to keep an eye on what's happening in Adelaide there, where the Lord Mayoral election looks like it's being uh, challenged, uh, according to a report out of the ABC yesterday. Senator, the former Senator Rex Patrick, who lost narrowly to a former MP, Dr Jane Lomax-Smith, um, he has suggested that there's uh, some irregularities that need to be looked into and is challenging the result. And there's certainly been confirmation from the Electoral Commission that some ballots needed to be looked at very closely. The upshot of that, though, is that the former Lord Mayor, Sandy Vashore, has seemingly definitely lost the Lord Mayoralty. But we'll wait and see what happens with that challenge. I think it's one of the, um, one of the beauties, Chris, of living in a country where um, our election, electoral conduct is traceable and there are checks and balances to go through the necessary processes associated with this sort of thing. So yes. yeah, that will be interesting. And I, it was a close vote, wasn't it? It was about 50 or 60 votes from, yeah. from memory. So after the distribution of preferences. So yeah, close enough to warrant perhaps that extra scrutiny. Yeah, Chris, before you finish off, can I just go back to one thing that you managed to skip over during uh, during our discussion so far? Yes. Um, during the week, I was lucky enough to go out to, uh, uh, what's the name of the place? Whittlesea. Oh, yes. Um, which yes, I've heard of it. Mm. Yeah, and it was the final event, um, the coming together event of the um, community leadership program um, and cohorts through um, commencing in May and August. Uh, of community leaders had been through a program very ably led by Craig Lloyd and the council team, Dr Geraldine Kennett from uh, La Trobe University, uh, Emanuela Savini and the VLGA. And um, it was an absolute privilege to be involved and to be in that room. And Craig made a very good point in his speech, which just reminded me of, of a good lesson um, for anyone in local government. Mm -hmm. And what was that? But, well, he said that he, how much he enjoyed being in the room, but he also said, I'm looking forward to some of you people being my boss one day. <laughs> I don't know who it was. Someone wise said to me that when you're dealing with the public, just remember they get to stand and you never know, they might be your councillors one day. That's exactly right. And the, and the beauty of that leadership program is so many people are coming through and being equipped with more knowledge about what it means to uh, to stand and to represent the community. And hopefully we'll see lots of them putting their hands up. It was privileged to be involved, Chris. Hmm. Uh, I did want to make the point also, uh, talking about standing for election, there's a, there's a lot of current councillors running for uh, the current state election. Uh, I'm not trying to keep track of them all. There's there's too many. It's too hard to, uh, to, to, to do a definitive list. Someone said, have you got a list? No, because we'll miss we'll miss some. Um, you know, yeah. some councils have got three and four councillors. One uh, one councils deferred their mayoral election. That's Latrobe, Steve, yes. because of leaves of, of absence uh, for a few weeks. Um, I suspect one or two others might be doing the same. I'm looking at Brimbank. Not sure what the timing of their mayoral mm. election is. They've got a few standing. So uh, I guess I'm saying I'm not even trying to keep up. We'll just wait and see what happens over the next uh, twelve. 
days or so. Chris, I clicked through, I don't know, 20 or 25 seats on the VAC website. And I've got to say, I am not that familiar with the councillors at the 79 councils in Victoria mm. to do anything um, yeah, coherent in, in very much the way you described. I uh, do want to um, just acknowledge on a very sad note, uh, our local government colleagues across the border in Bell Reynolds Shire, uh, our thoughts are with them, where the general manager, Jeffrey Soiak, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, um, uh, who just started with the council in April this year, has passed away suddenly. Yeah, I saw that report, um, Chris, and, and that's that's particularly sad. Um, I mean, that council is dealing with a whole lot of water that's already come through and will be coming through again. That's not to diminish the tragedy for um, uh, the council, the council staff and Mr Soak's family. And so we send out our deepest sympathies. Very experienced local government practitioner he was, uh, having held senior roles in uh, virtually every state except for South Australia, I believe. Mm. Um, that is one of, Bell Rannell is one of the small number of councils in New South Wales that are under administration until the next election cycle, which I think is September of 2024. But absolutely, our thoughts go out to Mr. Soiak's uh, family and friends and, and the broader family of Bell Reynolds Shire. Steve, before we uh, wrap up, uh, a couple of classified notes. There's another global executive panel coming up from the VLGA and LGIU on the 1st of December, where we'll hear from a terrific, I know I always say this, but again, a terrific panel of uh, speakers from rural and coastal shires. So this is about, you know, what are the issues specific uh, Lee, um, exercising the minds and the challenges for rural and coastal shires, both in the UK and in Australia. That'll be terrific, Chris. And if anyone hasn't been, the um, the global panels are terrific events. Um, and I think we decided last time, some people do just register to make sure that they get a copy of the recording. But come along at the time and you get to actually ask a question as well. So Exactly um, right. Yeah. yeah, great panel. Um Really interesting contested topics. Um, I'll be fascinated by it. So you've got a couple of weeks there to, to get your registration in. That's on the 1st of December. And there's some election-related interviews coming our way very soon, Steve. There are, Chris. So just quickly, the global panel, um, the VLGA, VLGA events page, um, that's where you get all that detail. And, yes, yeah, so we'll, in fact, I will be interviewing uh, the chairs of Rural Councils Victoria, Regional Cities Victoria and the Peri-Urban Group of Councils over the next few days, and we'll be posting those up before the election, really around what their um, advocacy priorities are at the moment. And even if people don't consider that um, while they're actually voting, I think they'll be a good reminder for councils as to, you know, maybe some advocacy topics for um, post the state election, Chris. All right, Steve. I think that's all we have on our list for this week. What sort of a week have you got coming up other than those interviews that you're doing? Well, got those interviews, Chris. <laughs> Good. Keeping you busy. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Steve. Have, have a great weekend. Have you voted yet? That'd be between me and the ballot box, but no. <laughs> I know, well, it's you do realise it's compulsory. I do. Yeah. And I know you don't and, have to And, and in fact, you know, I know where the early voting centre is, and I've decided if I'm going anywhere near it, I'll probably vote. Otherwise, on the day of the election, I'll wake up in the morning and have a look where which local school I'm meant to go to and just wander down and have a snag. But isn't it interesting uh, how many people are, like all reports are, the, the numbers are astronomical, the people who are voting 
early. Uh, I thought you needed a bona fide reason to vote early, like I'm going to be travelling or what have you, but apparently that's all changed. Well, I was really interested in the VEC's um, collateral, which is really almost now saying, yeah, it's out there if you want to go and vote, go and vote. Um, yeah. Whereas, yes, as you say, in previous years, you had to have a proper reason. And we're not even going to go towards uh, discussing the uh, the upper house voting issues that have been uh, in the news, but some uh, existing councillors are caught up in all of that drama. Uh, no, we'll, we'll leave it right there, Chris, because our listener has things to do, I'm sure. Thank you, Steve. Good to catch up as always. And Thanks, Chris. Uh, I'll talk to you again next week for the governance update here on VLGA Connect, which is brought to you by the team at Hunt and Hunt Lawyers. And we're ever grateful for their support for the program. And we're ever grateful to you for watching and listening. And we hope you'll do so again soon. Bye for now.